0: Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. The kids' own worship. The rest of you can open to Acts chapter 12. As we continue through our journey in the book of acts we'll, i was kind of mapping out how long it's going to take us to get through acts and i think in um august we'll be done so just to let you know we're going to be in acts for a while acts chapter 12. now many of you have probably never heard of a guy named tom Shadyac, but i bet you you've seen his movies He's the director of Bruce Almighty. He's the director of Ace Ventura Pet Detective. He's the director of The Nutty Professor. He's a movie director who's just come out with a new documentary. Now, his new documentary is called I Am. And Oprah is really promoting it Ellen DeGeneres is really promoting it what's this I am little short documentary about well he goes around the world and he asks some of the greatest minds the greatest leaders in our culture this question what's the greatest problem in our world what's the greatest problem in our world and basically what he comes up with is that through all this scientific technology there's one answer to all the problems in the world and this is the final answer Humans are far more grand than we ever imagined. I am. Now, I find it very eerie that that's the name that God gave to Moses in the burning bush. What did God say? I am that I am. God is the great I am, the God who is. But you see, in our culture now, it's not just worshiping God the great I am, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, most clearly revealed through his son, Jesus Christ. The the culture says, no, I am. It's all about who? Me. Everything in this culture is about me. It illustrates the spirit of our age. Now, during the Protestant Reformation, the Reformers attempted to recapture the gospel. And what they formulated were five statements We call these the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. And one of the five statements is this, Soli Deo Gloria. Now say it with me, Soli Deo Gloria. Now you can go home saying, I know Latin. What it means is this, God alone receives all of the glory. To God alone be the glory. And so you see, the issue in our culture is not a sociological problem. It's not an environmental problem. It's not an anthropological problem. It's not an economic problem. The ultimate issue in our world is a sin problem. You see, every single person without Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior is under God's wrath, and they need to be rescued through the blood and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the message of Christianity is this. God alone is at the center of the universe, not human human beings it's not about us unless you think this has crept into the secular movie maker realm let me give you a quote from robert schuler the now famous pastor of the defunct crystal cathedral this is what he said the reformation erred, got it wrong because it was god-centered rather than man-centered does that bother you the reformation was wrong because it focused too much on god and it wasn't man-centered listen to the words of the psalmist psalm 115 1 through 3 not to us O lord not to us but to your name give glory For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Not to us, O Lord, but to your name. Now, we talk about this a lot around Emmanuel. We've said this since the day I stepped foot as your pastor. What is the chief end of man? What's our purpose? Why do we exist? Why were we created? The chief end of man is this to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Our ultimate purpose is to find satisfaction, joy, purpose, meaning to magnify, to glorify, to worship, to treasure, to find value in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. But you see, we live in a culture of narcissism. Do you guys know where narcissism comes from? It's in Greek mythology. Narcissist was a, was a person who basically looked at his reflection in a reflecting pool and couldn't get away from looking at himself. He basically died of old age by looking at himself. That describes our culture, right? We like looking at ourselves. It's all about me. It's all about I am. I am the greatest in the universe. So what does this narcissistic, I am the center of the universe type attitude have anything to do with Acts chapter 12 this morning? As we see here at Acts chapter 12, we're going to see a dichotomy between two groups of people. You've got, first of all, the early church who was desperate and humble and dependent in prayer, seeking the glory of God above all things. And as opposed to that, you see King Herod, who is a proud, arrogant, evil man who's seeking himself power popularity. And so, this text this morning really forces us to ask a couple of questions. Here's a great question for us to ask Does God truly answer prayer? And that's, that's a fundamental question. Do we truly believe that God can do the impossible? Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking in your mind, I don't think I can believe that God can do the impossible. Maybe cognitively in your mind, you're like, oh yeah, God's sovereign, God's powerful. But when the rubber meets the road in your real life where your feet are planted here in northeastern Colorado in 2012, you're struggling with the fact that can God really do what he says he can do? Does God really answer prayer? Is God really as powerful as the Bible paints him to be? So what I want us to do is look at Acts chapter 12 and see these two opposing viewpoints. One that is man-centered, King Herod, and one that is God-centered, the early church. So let's read Acts chapter 12. Let's look at verses 1 through 5, and then we'll, we'll keep going here. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made by God, or made to God by the church. Okay, we have the second villain in our story here. A new villain. Before it's been the religious leaders, it's been the Pharisees, it's been Saul of Tarsus, but now you've got a new villain, King Herod. And then you have the second martyr behind Stephen of a person in the New Testament. James, the brother of John, is murdered by King Herod. He's put to death. And what do we find out about this King Herod? He's violent. He's jealous. He's a people pleaser. Notice what it says in verse 2, or verse 3. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he went and decided to arrest Peter. His motivation for arresting Peter was to see how how the the killing of, of James really affected the situation. So he was more concerned with power politics, being a people pleaser. He was more interested in popularity than he was in doing the right thing. And so here we have really in the book of Acts the last story about Peter. The focus is going to shift to Paul. Peter's been the main character up to this point. He's been the primary leader in the church of Jerusalem. He's preached all these famous sermons. Last week, we saw this whole issue of of Cornelius uh, and going to the Gentiles. And so this is one last snapshot in the life of Peter before we move on through the rest of the book of Acts and with Paul. But notice what it says about the church. Peter's in prison, but what do we find in verse five? Peter was kept in prison, but earnest, earnest prayer for him, was made to God by the church. Earnest prayer. The word earnest there means to stretch, to strain, to agonize, to be exhausted, to, 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 to persist in, to continually pour your heart out passionately in prayer. There's only one other place that word shows up in the New Testament. And interestingly, of all places, it shows up when Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. In Luke 22, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. There's the word. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus prayed and drops of blood came out like sweat, earnestly. The text here says the church was praying earnestly, passionately, to the point of exhaustion. Do we truly believe? that God can do what he says he can do. Do we pray like this earnestly? I've never prayed to the point of drops of blood coming down. I don't think any of us can experience what Christ experienced, but do we pray passionately, earnestly, the way this early church was? Because here's the issue. What you believe about God will directly influence how you pray. What you believe about God will influence how you pray. If you believe God's a genie in a bottle and he's there for your beck and call, then you're going to pray with wrong motives. What does James chapter 4, verse 3 say? You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. To spend it on your passions. If you believe God is powerless... God is not sovereign. God's kind of just up there in the clouds, kind of waiting for you to, to kind of um, prod him along to do his will. If you believe God is a, a tiny God, you're going to pray with wrong motives. We looked at that passage earlier in James chapter 1, verses 5-7. through seven. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the waves of the sea, is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. If you believe God owes you an answer because of your good behavior, that God is somehow obligated to give you a response because of your righteousness apart from Christ, you're going to pray with wrong motives. But if you believe God is sovereign, God is good, he's your heavenly father, he is powerful, he can do all things, and then he does all things for his glory, and then we can go to this great God with our petitions, then you will pray with right motives. Does God answer prayer? Yes. Most definitely. Does God answer prayer in the way we most often would like? Maybe. No. Do we pray to change God's mind? No. We can't pray to change God's mind because he's sovereign, but prayer changes our hearts and minds. Listen to what R.C. Sproul said about prayer. If you were to pray individually, or if you and I were to join forces in prayer, and if all the Christians of the world were to pray collectively, it would not change what God and his hidden counsel has determined to do. That begs a question. Well, then why pray? God's got it all figured out. If God is sovereign and and everything's already figured out, then why in the world do we waste our time praying? Sproul goes on to say this. The very reason we pray is because of God's sovereignty because we believe that God has it within his power to order things according to his purpose that is what sovereignty is all about ordering things according to God's purpose so then prayer does does prayer does so does prayer change God's mind no does prayer change things yes of course what prayer most often changes is the wickedness and hardness of our own hearts that alone would be reason enough to pray even if none of the other reasons were valid or true we pray because Jesus commanded us to pray, but we pray because we know that God answers our prayers, maybe not in the way that we want him to, but we go with the confidence that he's our heavenly father. How did Jesus teach us to pray? What did he say in Matthew 6, 9 through 10? Jesus says, pray like this. And anytime Jesus says, do something like this, we probably better do it like this. How does he start the prayer? My universe... Hallowed be my name. My kingdom come and my will be done because after all, it's all about me. Is that how Jesus starts the prayer? What does he say? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer at its very center, the way Jesus teaches us, is about God's glory. It's about God's glory. God, it's about your name. It's about your fame. It's about your kingdom. It's about your will. You are holy. You are sovereign. You are gracious. I'm coming. And it's all about you. It's interesting. John Calvin is one of the great Protestant reformers, and he's written a book, Institutes of the Christian Religion. And a lot of people are scared off by this book because it's about that thick, and they think it has all this, this deep theology in it. Do you know what the largest chapter in, in John Calvin's book is on? Prayer. Prayer. He spends more time talking about prayer than a lot of theologians. Listen to his words. He says this, it is very important for us to call upon him first that our hearts may be fired with a zealous and burning desire ever to seek, love, and serve him while we become accustomed in every need to flee to him as our sacred anchor. Do you flee to God as your sacred anchor with zeal, with passion, with fervency. That's what the early church was doing. They were making earnest prayer, heartfelt, agonizing, persistent prayer to God. Because Peter's in prison, right? What had just happened? The other apostle James had just been killed. What are they thinking in their mind? Peter's probably next. His head's on the chopping block. Well, let's keep reading and see how the story unfolds. Verse 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prisoner. It's almost as if he's like Osama bin Laden or some terrorist. I mean, it's got major security here. Two soldiers, two chains, sentries by the door. We don't want this guy to get out. Verse 7, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord. Just so happens to open. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now... I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, "'You're out of your mind.'" But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. What we find next is an unexpected deliverance. I mean, what gave the early church any hope that Peter would be released? What had they just seen? James executed. So they're living here in the tension as the early church with one apostle being killed, one apostle being released. Does God give an explanation for this? How come one gets killed and one gets released? Does God explain himself? No, they just live in the tension of having to to understand God's providence and all this whole thing. Here's the issue. In some cases, God answers the way we want him to. In other cases, he does things differently. In some cases, an apostle gets murdered. In other cases, an apostle gets freed. In some cases, God heals cancer. In other cases, cancer ravages the body that the person dies with an unexpected life uh, so fast that we don't even expect it. In some cases, God allows fathers to live to a ripe old age and die in peace. In other cases, young fathers fall off ladders and die. In some cases, children are in car crashes and die early. In other cases, God allows children to live. In some cases, couples have miscarriages. In other cases, they have a healthy baby. In some cases, you do everything right in your job and you get a promotion. In other cases, you lose your job and go on unemployment. I can't explain why these things happen. These are mysteries of the universe that none of us can explain. Why do some things happen sometimes and some things happen other times? I don't know. I don't know. We have to live in the tension Sometimes God answers prayer the way we want him to. Other times he doesn't. One apostle gets killed, the other one gets released. But we must never give in to fatalism. What is fatalism? Fatalism says, well, God's got it all figured out, and God's going to do what he's going to do. Then why pray? Why do anything? Why don't you sit back and just, just just let the chips fall where they may? That's not a biblical definition of God's sovereignty. You pray like crazy for healing. You pray like crazy for your wayward child. You pray like crazy for your marriage to be restored. You pray earnestly. You pray like crazy. You're like the persistent widow that keeps banging on God's door time and time again. And you plead with God and you have tears with God and you get on your knees before God and you wear God out in prayer and you never let up. But you know at the back of your mind, That you pray like Jesus. Not my will be done, but yours. Don't let God's sovereignty ever be an excuse to be lazy or passive or not to pray. God will use our prayers oftentimes as a means to bring about his accomplished will. Many of you probably never heard of a guy named William Cooper. He's a British poet. He wrote two of the most famous hymns of all time. Very sad individual. Never married, was in love with a woman that, his, that her father basically said you can't marry. He wanted to become a lawyer in the House of Lords during the 1700s. He was so nervous preparing for his test that he be, almost became suicidal. On three times, he almost tried to commit suicide. One night, he was so distraught that he wanted to commit suicide that he called a carriage, he called a cabbie. He said, take me to the Thames River so I can drown myself. Well, in God's providence, there was a fog and he didn't get to the Thames River, the the, the carriage driver brought him back to his home, and he didn't commit suicide. He ended up going into an insane asylum. It was there in the insane asylum that he was under the um, tutelage of a guy named Dr. Nathaniel Cotton, who was an evangelical um, Christian, witness to him. Uh, uh, William Cooper found the Bible laying there on the bed and started reading about the gospel, and then with tears in his eyes, he understood that Christ died for his sins, and, and he became a Christian, And then he went to live with a family. And this family lived out in the country and they had a neighbor. Their neighbor was a former slave trader turned pastor who just so happened to write the hymn Amazing Grace. John Newton was William Cooper's friend and pastor. And most people believe if, if John Newton hadn't invested in the life of William Cooper for 13 years, he would have most definitely committed suicide. Or he would have gone even more and more insane. Here you have an example of a born-again, regenerated Christian that struggles with depression, struggles with suicide, struggles with all these issues in his life, and yet we think that everybody has to have it all together, that there's no such thing as, as a struggle as a Christian. Let me let you hear his words. You may not know, one of the hymns he wrote is, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. The other hymn he wrote is, God Moves, in a mysterious way. Listen to this. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break and blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Behind all the clouds, behind all the hard times, behind everything that looks insurmountable, God is there. And he's got a smiling face upon his children. It may seem like what you're looking at is a cloud. What you're looking at is darkness. And sometimes it feels like the whole world's crashing in, but God is there for you with a smiling face. And here's the issue. God answers their prayer, almost in a a very miraculous way, because, I mean, only God could have done this. Think of all the things that were related to Peter's imprisonment. He's got two guards, two chains. He's got these, these guards outside the door. He has to go through two doors to get out. The door's just automatically open. And then to boot, there's an angel that does all this. And so God answers the fervent prayers of these people in a dramatic way. And so Peter shows up at at Mary's house as the mother of of John Mark, who later becomes the traveling companion of Paul. Mark would go on to write the gospel of Mark. And what happens? He goes back to this house, and what are they doing? They are praying earnestly. And I'm sure what they were praying was not little boring, wimpy prayers like, Dear God, please be with us. Dear God, please bless us. Now, I'm sure that this was a passionate, heartfelt, crying out to God on their knees, weeping, saying, Lord, you've got to act. Lord, you've got to move. Peter is in prison. Lord, would you please, would you please answer our prayers? And I had to ask the question, do we pray like this at our prayer meetings? Yes, we do have prayer meetings on Sunday night. Do we on our knees agonize with tears praying for our loved ones, praying for our community, praying for revival? Sometimes yes. Most of the time, I think most of what we offer up to God is pretty wimpy. I'll just say it right up. The, problem we, the reason we probably haven't seen God's powerful hand of revival in our community is because we become so lazy at prayer. We're so lazy at prayer. And here's the funny thing. Here's where it gets funny. This little servant girl, Rhoda, Peter goes to the door and, and there's Peter! Peter! And Rhoda doesn't say, come on in, Peter. What does she do? She runs back and says, it's Peter. And they're like, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. You're seeing a ghost. And she's like, no, it's not a ghost. And so they go back and they bring Peter in. And how do they respond? They are amazed. Now, we really don't know what they were praying for, but were they expecting Peter to show up? I don't think they were really expecting Peter to show up. It's how It's like, okay, God, we're praying hard. We're praying earnestly. We don't know what they were praying for. Maybe they were praying for Peter's release. Maybe they weren't. Maybe they were praying that, that Peter would have one last powerful sermon before he was put to death. We don't know, but one thing happens. Peter shows up, and they're like, now, wait a minute. Now, God, I know that you're powerful, and God, I know that we're praying to you, but come on. You're gonna let Peter out? You mean you can do the impossible, God? I mean, you're actually answering our prayer, God? You mean you can do the impossible, God? Listen to Paul's words in Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly all that we can ask or think, some translations say imagine, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. Do you believe that? that God is able to do more than we can ask or even imagine according to his power that's at work within us? Now here's the aftermath. When God does things, sometimes the world doesn't understand. Sometimes there's consequences. And here's what happens. There's a commotion, and Herod gets upset, and Herod goes and basically kills these guards and gets into a violent rage and says, how did you let this prisoner escape? And what we begin to see here is the stark juxtaposition between a church that's humble, a church that's dependent, a church that's crying out to God, a church that wants God's glory above all things, and then you you starkly contrast that with Herod, the man-centered king. It was all about him. Now let's read the rest of the story and see how this unfolds. Verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. We sang it just a few moments ago. God is jealous for his own name. God is a sovereign, holy, glorious God. What does Isaiah 42, 8 say? I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. How about Isaiah forty eight eleven? For my own sake, for my own sake I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God will not share his glory with anyone. And what does this king do? He gets all dressed up. He gets his royal robe on. He goes out there and he sits on his throne and he begins to give this great oration. And what do the people say? It's as if he's a god. Josephus, who was a historian during the time, said that he wore a silver robe so that when the sun shone down upon him, it looked like he was glowing, like he was actually a glowing God. What should have King Herod said at that moment? No, 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 no. People, please, don't don't call me a God. I'm not a God. I'm not the true God. The the, the real God is the God of, of heaven and earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm just a servant. I'm just a king. The only reason I'm here and I have breath is because God has given me the ability to do that. Please don't deify me. I'm just a man. Please don't call me God. Is that what he does what does the text say in verse 23 immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he would not give God the glory his motto wasn't solely Deo Gloria he was the epitome of narcissism to boot you have this really gross image here of him being eaten by worms I mean Luke could have just left that out it's eerily reminiscent of what was said about the prince of Tyre in Ezekiel, which many scholars believe to be Satan himself. Listen to Ezekiel 28, one through two. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of the gods in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. Judgment is swift. Judgment is immediate. God strikes him. Same exact word that's used for God striking down Pharaoh back in Exodus. Think of all that's happened so far. Stephen's been stoned. Apostles have been dragged out and beaten. People have been dragged out of their homes. Saul of Tarsus has been converted And now you have James the apostle being killed and you have Peter being arrested and then God miraculously saves him and now you have this wicked king dying by being eaten by worms. And then in verse 24, I love it. You got this statement. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Don't you just love that? Can God's word be stopped? Can the gospel be stopped? Can persecution stop the multiplication of God's word? Can a tyrannical ruler named King Herod stop God's word? Can liberal Supreme Court justices stop God's word? Can a person in the White House stop God's word? Can laws being passed that outlaw religious freedom stop God's word? Can a secular society bent on destroying everything Christian stop God's word? No. In fact, what happens is... It shines all the brighter when you compare the culture to the light of God's grace. In fact, in all the, the evil that goes on here in the book of Acts, who gets the glory? If God's word's going to multiply and grow, who gets the glory? Does the early church get the glory? No, God does. God does. I think we've made things really complicated in church life. We've made things really, really complicated when it comes to the hand of God. And we've seen, think of all the things that we've got in our culture. We've got more conferences, we've got more programs, we've got more marketing, we've got more money, we've got more speakers. We've got everything at our disposal that we think is going to somehow usher in revival. If we just get the right program, the right technique, if we just get the right people, the right pro. all this machinery, if we just got all this stuff together, then God would surely bring revival. We've gotten it so complicated. What does the book of Acts tell us? there are two things I can guarantee you two things that God will use to bring about revival and these things aren't that hard to figure out and we've seen them week after week number one preaching number two prayer is that it yes preaching and prayer that is it When the gospel is preached, God is pleased to act and to save and to do great things. When God's people pray like crazy, God is is is, sees fit to do things and act and transform and do great things. But the problem is, is we've been convinced by our culture that those things just aren't, pardon the French, sexy enough. That's it. Prayer. There's got to be something better. There's got to be something more powerful. Preaching, sharing the gospel, there's got to be some program. There's got to be something more sophisticated. There's got to be something just more out there. We have lost just the simple faith in how God grows and multiplies his church. A.W. Tozer said this, God is looking for those with whom he can do the impossible. What a pity that we plan only the things that we can do by ourselves. This doesn't come from me, but this comes from our friend Artaxerdea. I think it's a very appropriate question. Here's the question. What are you asking God to do that only God can do so that when God does it, he gets all the glory and you don't? What are you asking God to do that only God can do so that when God does it, he receives all the glory and we don't. Is there something in your life this morning that seems insurmountable? I mean, I've I've lived with you guys for 7 years. I've talked with you, I've prayed with you, and there are a lot of people in this room today that I know are struggling with issues. And you're wondering, is there a light at the end of the tunnel? Are we ever going to make it? There's so many roadblocks. There's so many issues. It just seems like I'm fighting an uphill battle. There's mountain after mountain. There's insurmountable thing after insurmountable thing. And maybe you come into this place today and you are just seeing things as being impossible. What you believe about God determines your attitude in prayer. Do you believe that He's absolutely sovereign? Do you believe that he's powerful and can do all things? Do you believe he's good and he's loving? Do you believe that he knows exactly what you need? I think far too often we give God the quick nod, we say our little prayers and we move on. We don't get down and dirty and get busy the way the early church did in praying passionately. What's the best prayer you can pray? You ever thought about that? If you don't know a prayer to pray, let me tell you a prayer to pray. This is the best prayer you can pray. God, and this is whatever situation you're dealing with, God, whatever would bring you the most glory and be for my good, let it happen regardless of the circumstances. Whatever would be for your glory and for my good, I want that to be done. Knowing that you alone get all the credit for it because here's the issue. Whether we like it or not or whether we know it or not, God's glory and our good are not in conflict. God's glory and our good aren't in conflict. Sometimes we pray, God, I want you to get all the glory. But here's the issue. What may be the best good for us may be painful. God may be pruning. God may be shaping. God may be taking us through something for our good and for His glory, and it may seem like it's not very good. So, whatever would bring you the most glory, God, and whatever would be for my good, the way you define good, not the way I define good, I want it to be done. At the end of the day, I want to lay my head on my pillow, resting in the fact that I've wrestled with you in prayer. I've banged down your door in prayer, Jesus. I know that you can do all things, but I'm going to lay my head on my pillow at night, and I'm going to be like you, Jesus, and saying, not my will, but yours. Be done. There may be a lot of selfishness and idolatry in our hearts that God needs to purify. And for him to get the glory and for us to be our good god may need to take us through some issues for that to happen but at the end of the day we want our motto to be Soli deo gloria to god's glory alone not to us O oh lord not to us but to your name be the glory let me ask you to bow your heads this morning as you spend time in silent prayer this morning I'm just going to ask the Holy Spirit to work in your heart that you would believe that God can do all things and there may be some of you in this room this morning that just have some major issues they may be health issues they may be family issues they may be financial issues they may be relational issues work issues And you've come in here bearing this burden. And your faith is shaken right now. You know in your head God is sovereign and God is good. But in your heart, you're doubting. I want you to leave this place knowing that God is good. God is gracious. God is powerful. He's your refuge. He's your strong tower. He may not answer it in the way that you want it. He may be taking you through a journey to make you more like his son Jesus. But he will never leave you or forsake you. He will always be there for you. Would you go to this great God this morning with tears, with pleading, with heartfelt passion and lay your requests before this great God? And then when you pray to this great God, trust that he hears you And that he loves you. And that he knows what's best for you. What are you asking God to do that only God can do so that when God does it, he alone gets all the glory? Spend some time this morning going before your great God. You are a God of compassion. You're long suffering. You're slow to anger. You're merciful. You're kind. You're faithful. You're forgiving. You're an present help in times of trouble. You cover us with your wings. You're our strong tower. You're our refuge. You're our rock. You hold us in the palm of your hand. You never leave us or forsake us. You're always there. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from our Father. You are the Father of lights in whom there is no darkness at all. You do not shift like the shadows, Father you're constant, you're reliable, you're firm. Or we could go on and on describing who you are. Help us to believe it. Help us to trust. Lord, I pray for my church family this morning. Lord, I intercede on many in this place who have hardships and trials and insurmountable issues. Father, would you let us leave with hope this morning that you're sufficient, you're good, you're powerful. Lord, I don't want anybody to leave this place feeling defeated that there's no hope. Lord, I don't want anybody to leave this place feeling like you can't be trusted. That you're not sovereign, that you're not good, that you're not powerful. And Lord, you may not answer in the way that we want, but Lord, we don't want what you don't want. We want your will to be done and your kingdom to become. So Father, would you come and touch hearts in only the way that you can touch and minister in only the way that you can minister Lord, would you do a deep work of grace in our hearts to know that there is hope. Father, I just sense just in talking with so many of our people that sometimes there's a lack of hope. We talk so much about the sovereignty of God at this church. Lord, I pray that we believe it, that you are good that you are gracious, that you are a rock. And so, so many times, Lord, we feel powerless because we can't help each other. We, we can say kind words, we can pray for one another and, and, and Lord, I thank you for those times we can encourage one another but Lord, sometimes we, we just need a touch from you in a powerful way. So would you do that this morning, Lord? Help us to leave With hope. I'm gonna ask you to continue with your heads bowed this morning and I'm gonna ask the praise team to go ahead and start playing.